Amen. If you got your Bibles, I'm going to be preaching today out of James chapter number 2, and, and then we're going to be covering from Genesis to Revelation, because I wasn't here last Sunday, and I feel like we need to go through it. <clears throat> and uh, I feel like I'm so far away from y'all, because they've added another row in here, and they've scooted me back, and, but it's all right. All you first row people, I'll be out there with you momentarily, okay? Uh, look at James chapter number 2. I want you to look with me at verse number 14, and uh, we're going to go through these scriptures. I'm going to be preaching today about what do you think. Now, you probably never heard a pastor start off his message of asking you, what do you think? Um, because we really shouldn't try to go around the room and ask everybody, what do y'all think about it? Uh, I don't think that we should sit around and go in our Bible study time and just say, well, what do you think more than what does he say to us? Because it's really not about what we think. So this question is like a loaded question to me in a way because I don't want you to go, well, I think this about it because everybody has grown up, probably some of you have grown up in church. You've heard these stories. You've heard cliches. You've heard scriptures. You've even heard testimonies, and you've devised your Christian walk or your theology, whatever you call it, your teaching, your doctrine that you walk around with, by something that someone said as they stood up, and you're still thinking that they're tying a rope around the priest's waist as he walks into the holy of holies, and if the bells stop ringing, he's dead, and you drag him out and get another guy next in line, and. You can't find that in the Scripture. You can't even find that in Jewish, uh, uh, what they call their historical, the Haggadah, the traditional books. You can't find those things. And I can remember as a kid hearing these things and growing up as a young preacher hearing them, and then I would go, man, I'm going to find that. Where's it at? And I would look for it and look for it and look for it, and I couldn't find it. And I was like, what happened, you know? Sometimes stuff is said in church out of enthusiasm and excitement, and you get so excited about it, and it sounds really good, like it would go good with God's stuff. And before long, you've built this theory and this idea on something that somebody said out of emotions or a preacher preached out of emotional thought and just shared with you this could happen or this could take place, and now you've built 20 years of your life that that's truth and that's fact. We're in that society today. America, Christ, American Christianity is really totally different from when we look at mission fields and other things. Now, I personally think a pastor, I've been praying about this for a while, a pastor ought to be, every pastor ought to be taken out to the mission field at least once every year to get their minds back to what the true gospel and what we're actually supposed to be doing and get out of, don't misunderstand me, but Robert's rules of order and Steve's rules of order in church and actually get out there on the field and see that, hey, the gospel is enough, the gospel's sufficient, you don't need 47 bylaws in order to worship God, okay? You should have all things, as Corinthians says in chapter 14 of the first book. Let all things be done what? Decent and in order. But you also should know that when it comes to the gospel, that nothing ever will take the place from one-on-one -on -one sharing Jesus and your story about what he's done for you with somebody. It will never be replaced. You'll never... Uh, I guess you call it prime it up and fix it up, paint it all up and all that stuff and make it into something different. You're just trying to reinvent the wheel. When you did, What you need to do is just put some wheels on the wagon and share the gospel. So looking at this, 
James is really, he's a stern preacher. Uh, I think it was Martin Luther that actually said that James' epistle was a strawy. He called it a strawy epistle. Uh, And in my thought process, what he's saying is it's like finding a needle in a haystack. He said it's one of those things where uh, there's some hard things to understand. Paul talked about some hard things to be understood, but no one talked about things that was difficult to understand more than Jesus did. You know, he told Nicodemus, you must be born again, and left Nicodemus scratching his head about the whole, uh, you know, the whole conversation they had. But James, in the book of James, Christians get this big thing because they go to Paul, and Paul talks about being justified, which means being saved by grace alone, that there are no works that you could do that you could save yourself, that you can't be good enough, you can't tithe enough, you can't come to church enough, so there's no works of the law that can ever save someone, and it's always by God's grace that you are saved and not of your works. Then we go to the book of James, and James starts throwing down some stuff, and you go, now, wait a minute, this is different. These are harder. Look at what verse number 14 says. James chapter 2, let's begin in verse number 14. Hey, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. It says, what does it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. Yea, or yes, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, and, look, he says, Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith, excuse me, was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. He says these words right here. Pay attention. Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Father, help us today to understand the scripture. Without the Holy Spirit, Without spiritual understanding and spiritual wisdom from you, from the Holy Ghost of God, we will not understand this today. We will leave confused. We will leave with questions. God, I pray that your understanding would be given to people who desire it. God, and that means you know my prayer is that they must be asking you for the understanding of this with an open heart and an open mind so that they can receive it from your hand and not the hand of some preacher and not the hand of some commentary or some things that I may say, but God, that they hear it straight from you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen. You can be seated. You know, this morning as we talk about uh, questions, I I wrote this down, that we're often faced with questions daily, every day. All of us are faced with questions. You may be like me, and I share this a lot of times. You may be like me. By the end of the day, I don't want any more to answer. Even if it's like, how how many of you uh, that are married are constantly frustrated and arguing over what are we going to eat? You know what I mean? You look at her and you go, what do we want to eat tonight? She goes, I don't care. What do you want to eat? And 
You look at her and go, it doesn't matter to me. What do you want to eat? And we have more arguments, and, and I was with someone yesterday, and it was like, what a blessing it is for us to be able just to try to argue and figure out what we're going to eat, not if we're going to eat, but when we do eat, what are we going to eat? There are many people that are questioning if they'll be able to eat today. And we're sitting around, you know, and so if, if I want to give you something, guys, to help you out. If you'll just throw this in there, all of these arguments on the on the road will be handled if she says it doesn't matter to me what do you want to eat you say crystals and she'll pick I promise you if you say crystals she'll go you know what I think I would like to go to Jack's or something like that because I don't know why they don't like that but every day we're faced with questions I may regret this next statement probably in the next service more than in this service but questions are important to ask okay all of you in here you keep that to yourself if I want to tell the one single person I'm trying to keep that from today, I'll do that myself. But and questions are important to ask because without those questions, we're constantly faced with what? With no answer, no truth, no understanding of it all. You know, the Jewish rabbis, as they taught in the days of Jesus and even before, well, you, we call them Jewish rabbis. Jesus talked to them. They asked Jesus if he was a rabbi. And the, the word rabbi means teacher. Uh, when they use the word rabbon, it means master, you know. Uh, they use the word rabbis, which means a, a, an instructor. Uh, it's pretty cool because at the tomb, when Jesus was resurrected and Mary was there outside the tomb, and she thought he was the gardener, and, and, she, and Jesus said Mary, you know, and called, his, uh, called her name, she turned and said rabboni, which is like a three-word mixed in one. She called him everything. She said, my teacher, my master, and the great one that I love. So it's pretty cool to call it all in that it was almost like my mama saying Steve Allen Abney you know and it was like get your attention and so the Jewish rabbis or we're going to call them a teacher today they constantly the way that they taught you remember how many of you remember um Psalms chapter 119 that I ended with and preached about how it's in the center of our book. It's broken out into 22 sections, which are the 22 consonants of the, the Hebrew alphabet or alphabet, you know, and we talked about the octaves and all of that and how it's all in order and stuff. Well, the Jewish rabbis, a lot of time, those teachers, they would stand up in the synagogues. They would stand out even in the marketplaces. And even Jesus rebuked some of them because he said, you just stand out there to be seen of men. You know, you, you want people to see the large. You've, you've, you've made larger the phylacteries and the telephenes. You say, what is that? It was little boxes that they had with leather straps that they put on their forehead. And inside of the box, it was Deuteronomy chapter 6, where they were supposed to hide the Word of God in their, in their minds and to also have it at the work of their hands. And so they, they had this huge leather strap and a telephene that would be on there. And it was a box that had that looked like a little present and stuff. Even a Jewish home, if you walk to a Jewish home today, Brother Mitch, you'll, you'll know it, uh, not because they, they say uh, us, we Jews live here, but if you look on their doorpost to the left, you'll see a, a, a little bitty thing that have a Hebrew letter. It's about this long. It's about that, you know, slender like that, but it's about that long. Inside there is a scroll paper that's wrapped up or, or uh, uh, curled up, and inside it's Deuteronomy chapter 6 because the Bible says that they were to put the Word of God upon their doorpost and other things. Now, we understand in the New Testament that the Lord is teaching us that we should have the Word of God in our minds. We should have the Word of God in our hearts, on the doorpost of our hearts, but we should also everything that we do, what did he tell us in the New Testament in the Colossians? He says, whatsoever your hand findeth to do, do it heartily as you would do in the Lord. So whatever we do, we do with the working of the word of God. So thinking of that, they would constantly do it this way. 
they never really stood up and said, you must believe this way. They, they weren't like Baptist preachers that point their long fingers and stomp their feet at you and stuff. They always asked questions. They always did it in a questionative way in order to do what? To kind of draw you or pull you to the conclusion of the truth. Um, they, they did it in such a way to where they would say things such as, uh, you've heard that it's been said of those of old. You've heard that it's been said. You, you, you've understood these things. And they bring it out in a question because if you answer it, that means you've come to the conclusion that you go, hey, I know the answer. You may, and, and this is not done in any better way than the way that Jesus did it. Jesus stood in Matthew chapter number 5. He didn't stand in Matthew chapter 5. He stood on the uh, Sermon on the Mount. You know, he was preaching to them. And as he was preaching, there's times over and over, you remember the Beatitudes, you know what I mean? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are all of these people. And he did the Beatitudes. And those Beatitudes should be our attitudes too, right? Amen? But he would stand up. And you remember what he said? He said, you have heard it was said of those of olden days. You heard that it's been said of those of old times. Constantly, he said, you've heard that it was said that you should love your, en- uh, love your neighbor but hate your enemies. But then Jesus turned around and says, but I say unto you that you should love your enemies, right? And that people would know you by your love. So Jesus was always, he was always bringing in teaching that they thought they knew, some kind of understanding of knowledge that they thought it was, and then he would face them with questions. You remember Jesus looked at his disciples one evening. Wouldn't it have been cool to be by the Sea of Galilee, the shores of Galilee, and just, you know, wrapping up the day with Jesus, you know what I mean, literally, your Bible study? And he just looks over at you and goes, hey, what did you think about today? You know what I mean? I would have, I would have been like Peter. I would have said everything. No one else would have got a word in. I would have said all the stuff. But at one time, Jesus looked at them and said, who do men say that I am? Do you remember this? This is the Son of God. He knew what they were saying. He knew what people were calling him. He knew the ones and the blasphemous names that people were calling him because he could read even the intents of the heart, right? He even told the disciples one time whenever a woman come into the room and began to anoint his feet and weep and wipe them with the hairs of her head, he asked them, why did you murmur and grumble within your heart? You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, you can hear that too? I thought, did I say that out loud? I didn't mean to say it out loud. But Jesus looks at the disciples and says, whom do men say that I am? None of them responded with, Lord, you know. I mean, you're walking around all the time. You know what everybody's saying about you. None of them said that. You know why? Because they were at the feet of a rabbi at this time. They were at the feet of a teacher. And Jesus is teaching them in the same Jewish way that has been throughout all of history. He is questioning them to bring them and draw out the truth and conclusion. And they begin to say, well, some say that you're Elijah. And some say that you're Isaiah. Some say that you're John the Baptist, you know, all this. And then Jesus, the greatest teacher of all, says these words, but who do you say that I am? You remember? And so all of a sudden, he's drawing those disciples around him to what others are saying. And he's making them, Brother Andrew, think, Okay, could it possibly be Isaiah? Could it possibly be Elijah? Could it possibly be John the Baptist? 
And he says, but who do you say I am? And Peter speaks not from flesh and bone, but he speaks from the Spirit of God revealing it to him. And he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said that he answered in such a true way. He says, flesh and bone or flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. And what it was was that great teacher Jesus took those students uh, after they had fed 5,000, after they had done the things of the day, and he took them and he made them think of all the information that they heard that day. Who do you think that I am? Who do men say that I am? Elijah, uh, Isaiah, John the Baptist. And he made them think of that knowledge. It's nothing is wrong with making people in the house of God think. As a matter of fact, we would do a whole lot better as the body of Christ if we would ask God for wisdom and knowledge and think these things out before we say them. And he calls them to think, and then he, boom, it's like a great teacher, and he went, but who do you say that I am? And immediately, they had to rationalize, at least we know Peter did, they had to rationalize what? No, he can't be Elijah because he's greater than Elijah. He can't be John the Baptist because he's greater than John the Baptist. He can't be Isaiah because he speaks greater than Isaiah. And Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one that was sent into the world. And it's like, can you imagine all the other disciples going, you know, like, how did you know that? You know, Peter, you're just a dumb fisherman. I mean, literally, he was. I know that it doesn't say that in the Bible, but they were unlearned Galileans. In English language from warrior, dumb fishermen. And Jesus says, you obtained that wisdom and knowledge by God giving that knowledge to you. And so now James, a great Jewish teacher, is now doing that same thing. James is not going against what Paul says, but he's bringing us to the faults of all of this stuff. And he begins by telling us in the very first verse that there are three kinds of faith that he's really dealing with in this chapter. And I know that you don't believe me on that because you think that always preachers have three kinds of something or five kinds of something. That all we see is threes and five. You know what I mean? Why don't you just be thankful that I don't see seven and nines, okay? <laughs> but threes and fives. And you look at it and you go, all right, Lord, what are you saying? Look at what it says. First of all, this kind of faith, number one, there is a dead faith that James talks about. He says there is this faith that is just dead. And as we would say, doorknob dead. He says in verse number 14, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of those daily things, the daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, or be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body. Look at this question that James brings out as a teacher. He says, What does it profit? When you think about that, what James is saying is this right here. What good is it? What good is it? Look back at verse number 14. He starts out by saying, what does it profit? What does it amount to? What good is it? He, and, and basically, James, this is really cool about James, and I try to be this way. James is not coming out of the gate going, this is despicable and disgusting, and I cannot believe that you would think this kind of thing, that this is just horrible. No, James is doing what? He's drawing people to a question. He's drawing us through what? Through the Spirit of God. This is a God-breathed book, right? 
divinely inspired by God, without error, amen, that's infallible, it's a wonderful book, it's an incredible book, and now we got an incredible teacher who learned also from Jesus how to speak and how to teach, and this Jewish teacher starts out of the gate, not with, don't tell me you have this and don't have that, and you don't have works with your faith, he starts with a question, he says, let me ask you something, what good is it? What good is it? And then he does this, and I love it when the Bible does this. When he puts in between two commas, my brethren. When he talks about, just go ahead and make this plain. If you want to write in your Bible, you can, and then you'll have a gender-perfect Bible. But when he says, my brethren, he's also saying, my sistren. Okay? When he says, my brethren, he's speaking to the body of Christ, to the church. He says, what does it profit? And he's talking not to lost people but to people who say they are a part of the body of Christ. He says, what good is it, church, if a man says he has faith and he does not have works of faith? Works of faith. If you want to write that in your Bible, you can, or to the side, if he doesn't have work of faith. He says, can faith save him? Then he goes on and he gives us a scenario. I love it. It's just like Jesus. When Jesus is talking about sharing the gospel, what does he do? He says, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed some seeds, some fell among the wayside, and some fell among the the stony ground, and some seeds fell among the thorns, and some fell among good ground. And he's trying to teach them with using an illustration. Now James, with his question presented, now he's opening up our hearts and our minds to what? An illustration. And he gives us something that maybe we can understand. He says, look, here's the situation. Let's say this. If a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food. And what it means by that is if they have no clothing for themselves, that they cannot provide the clothing, that they are not covered up, and that they're hungry and that they're starving. He said, let's say the scenario is a brother or a sister. I told you, sister, it's in there. If they're naked or destitute of daily food, and then he says this, and one of you say unto them, one of who? The church. One of you say unto them, this way he says, depart in peace and be ye warmed. You know what I mean? You're looking at a person last week, and it's cold outside, and they don't have any clothing, okay? They don't have any clothing to keep them warm, and you just walk by and go, be warmed. That ain't no good. It's what, Paul, I mean, it's what James is saying. He's like, it doesn't profit anything. You know what I mean? You go by and you got, you got this big old overcoat on. You got this jacket that's underneath it. You got your Nike hoodie on and all that stuff. And this person's freezing to death. And they are a brother or a sister in Christ. They're a part of the church. And you walk by them and they go, man, I'm freezing to death. I, you know, I, I'm hungry. I don't have anything. And you, know, and you look at them and go, be warmed. And you button your jacket up while you walk off with all that other stuff underneath you. And he says, and you don't provide for them the things that they need. James, again, opens with the question and ends with the question, which is the same. He says, what does it profit? What good is it? He said it's no good at all. Jesus said the same kind of statements, but he said it in a way that was even a little bit more stern than than James says here. He says the salt that's lost its savor, its flavor, its goodness, its ability to preserve and do what it needs to do and to be able to satisfy the taste buds. He says salt that's done that. He says, what good is it? Jesus even goes further, and I like how Jesus does things. He says, it's no good for anything, and then even adds, even to be thrown out on the dung pile. 
Anybody understand? We're good here in the south with dung pile. That's the manure pile. He says it's not, it doesn't have enough in it even to cover stink up. Amen? And what Jesus is saying, it's so poor and stinky that it can't even cover stinky. Right? Now, y'all, don't y'all like what we get in the scriptures? Amen? And so he says, what does it profit? Now, you look at James and you go, what gives you the right to say something like that? How dare you be that kind of teacher? James has not been pointing fingers and and hammering people. He's been questioning you and saying, let me give you a scenario. If this kind of happened and you don't do this, what good is it? And if that is enough, Jesus gives an illustration. Jesus says in Matthew chapter number 21, look at what it says in verse 28. He says, but what think you? Jesus starts out of the gate. He said, I want to give you something to think about. And I want you to know who Jesus is talking to. In Matthew chapter 21, he's not talking to Pharisees. He's not talking to scribes and all these other people. He's talking to the chief priests in Matthew chapter 21. And he tells them, he present, it's cool because they're supposed to be great teachers. And Jesus starts teaching them like their rabbi would teach Jesus, you know. And Jesus begins by saying, what do you think? And I like to say it like this. What do you think about this? Okay? And Jesus says these words. A certain man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. (laughs) Then after he picked himself up off the floor. (laughs) No, no, that's not what it says. It says, but afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. And then what does it say? He went not. And he does this to these chief priests. He says, whether of them, whether of them twain did the will of his father. He says, which of those two did the will of their father? In other words, not just to answer the request of the father, but to do what the father needed to be done. Because what was going on was the father, Brother Mitch, was the one that was going to go and work in the vineyard, but because of maybe being hindered or because of something else, what did he do? He had two sons, and he asked them to go and work in the field. Because why? It was needed to be done. It was a work that the father needed done, and so he asked his sons to do it. One son said, I will not go, but he repented and then went and one said I'll go and then he didn't go at all he lied about it and now he asked these chief priests he says which one of these two boys do you think did the work or the will of the father and it's cool because look Jesus sent put it in their hands they didn't hear Jesus say this person is wrong he brought them and rounded them up to a conclusion that they had to answer it And so many times, even in sharing the gospel with people and salvation, we're so interested in that person being saved that we're constantly trying to make the decisions for them, and that's not what the gospel needs to be, and that's not how we need to share the gospel. We need to share it in a way to where they are rounded up by the Holy Spirit of God, and they've got to come to the conclusion on their own because you can't talk someone, coerce someone, or convince someone to be born again. It's got to be something that's spiritually done because they have decided that I need to be saved. And they do it. So Jesus left it to them. Look at what they answered with. They said unto him, the first. The first one did. Jesus saith unto them, verily I say unto you. Oh, man, Jesus was stern. You think your daddy's tough. Jesus was tougher than your daddy on you. He says, verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. 
<laughs> it's like Jesus walks away and goes. I mean, seriously. He brought them to the conclusion, and they answered the truth, and Jesus said, that's exactly right. And there are going to be publicans and harlots or prostitutes that would go into the kingdom of God before you do. Because he was saying, you depend on your works of the law, and there are no works of the law that can save anybody at all. Amen? It is a matter of the heart, and it is a work of faith, not a work of the law. Amen? So the Bible says that. Then James comes back. We're going to come back to James now. James gives an illustration of being poor and destitute of clothing and food. Jesus gives an illustration about two boys. Now James comes back and concludes it. Look at what he says in verse number 17. He says, even so. And that, what that means is, is what I've just shared with you and how that can't be, that you can't be doing the right thing if you don't give them the, the clothing or the food for their need of that day. He said, even so. What even so means like this, the same thing, faith. Being alone, if it hath not worked, is dead being alone. James says, it's a dead faith. He said, if you say with your mouth of a profession that you have faith, but you do not act out that faith in a manner of possessing it, then your faith is dead. And dead things are dead. They're no good. There's no life in them. And what James is telling us this morning or bringing us to the conclusion, he says, a faith that saves is a faith that shows. And if the faith is not enough to show, then that faith is not enough to be a salvation faith. And you say, Brother Steve, how could you say such a thing? Listen, do you think that the kind of faith that can't get you up in the morning to drive 20 miles down the road to worship the one who died for you and bled for you, do you think that kind of faith that can't get you to go 20 miles down the road somewhere is going to take you all the way to heaven? Do you think the kind of faith that you say, hey, I, I, I know I'm saved. I, I did it when I was a long time ago, and you've never had any fruit, and you've never had any works, and you've never done this, and then we wrap your body up in a pretty suit or a pretty dress. We put you in some laced lining of a coffin, and you want the pastor to stand around and say that when Johnny so-and-so was this age or when Susie so-and-so was this age, they did all of this and they did that, but their whole life they never showed fruit. They never had works of faith and oh I, there's not a doubt in my mind that they're in heaven today that we can't do that I won't do that you say why brother Steve because that's a dead faith a faith that cannot move you to worship a faith that cannot move you to works of faith it's not a faith at all. He says it's a dead faith. You know what James says? James even gets a little thicker right here. and you'll, that it, We're going we're to take these down to a little bit more in just a moment. But he, he says this. He says not only is it a dead faith, he said that kind of faith, that's a demonic faith. That's a demonic faith. You say, Brother Steve, how could you say demonic and faith in the same sentence? Well, look at the scripture. I didn't say it. James says it. Look what it says in James chapter 2. Look at verse number 18. He says, yes. A man may say, isn't that great? Don't you hear Jesus? In chapter 5 of Matthew, you have heard it had been said of old. You have heard it had been said of old time. You have heard it had been said by those of old. He says that. Now James comes out and he says, yes, a man may say. A man may say what? He says, a man may say, you have faith and I have works. 
You know what James has just done? It's pretty cool, Brother Ronnie. James has just separated in our thoughts through the Holy Spirit of God, through the inspiration of the Word of God. He has separated our thoughts to the fact that you can have faith and you can have works. There are people that we know, that you know, that you may be, that you can do good works. People can do good things. People can give clothing to people that are in need. People can give food to people that are hungry. People can do those things. There are people that write checks of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars per year to charities and organizations and all of these people that are in need, but they deny that there is even a God. They deny that God exists. They deny Christ and blaspheme his name, but they're able to do Good works that are earthly good deeds and earthly good works. And James says, yes, a man may say, well, you've got faith, but I've got works. I've got to do good. Even the rich young ruler tried to come to Jesus and even present that case. He said, I've kept all these things since I was a youth. Do you know what he's saying in the South? He said, I've been doing good and going to church since I was knee high to a grasshopper. Right? That's what he was saying. I've done all of this stuff. And Jesus tells him to sell all that he has, everything that he has, not just give a little bit, but everything and throw it all away for the cause of Christ and come and follow me. And the man went away grieved. Why? Because he had much possessions. See, people and humans are able to sympathize and pity other people. I mean, we pity animals. We, we give to animal programs and do all these things out of the goodness of what? Humanity. And James says, you, a man may say that he has faith and you have works. But then James says this, show me your faith without works. And he says, and I will show you my faith by my works. What James says is that, yes, common men may say you can separate those two things. But James says, let me tell you one thing you cannot separate. He says, you cannot say that you have faith and have no works at all. You can't separate that. And no, you can't do it at all. He says, because why? He said, I will show you through the word of God and through my life that I live, my faith. The world may say you can separate it, but God's word says right there, Sister Darla, that you can't separate faith and never have any works. You can't profess to have Christ and never have works of faith. You can't say that you love Jesus and you hate your brother or your sister. You can't do that. You can't say that you love Jesus and you hate a skin tone or a skin color or you hate a certain group or anything like that. You can't do it. You can't have him and all of that other stuff. And that's what James is saying. James says a man may say that. He said, but that man is wrong, right? And he says, why? He said, that's a demonic faith. And you go, how could it be demonic? If you look at this scripture right here, he says, it's never about show me your works. In that scripture, it never is about show me your works. He even says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He is never saying, show me your works and your faith. He says, no, I'm showing you my faith through my works. 
I'm showing you my faith in Christ through my life. I'm showing you, you, how could you love everybody like that, Brother Steve? Because Christ that lives within me. Not because of me, but because Christ that lives within me. The faith that saves is the faith that shows. If it doesn't show, it cannot save. Amen? And so James lays all of that out, and he says, that kind of thought process is a demonic thought process and a demonic faith. Look at what he says in verse number 19. He says there, in the next one, he says, uh, Thou believest that there is one God. And he says, and you do well. You doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? He said, would you not know that? Go back to verse number 19, I think it is right there, where he says, you believe that there is one God. And look what he says, you do good in that. He says, you're doing good in understanding that there is one God. And what was going on was the Jewish brothers and sisters, they all believed, and even the church, they believed that there was one God, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, all of these things. He says, you're doing good. He said, let me say something to you. You're saying that you believe in the one God, and all you're believe- And let me put it to you in southern terms. You say that the good Lord, you know what I'm talking about? His name is Jehovah. But we kind of reduce it down and diminish it. And I'm really not fond of it. I'm not getting on to you if you say it. But people always go, oh, you know, the good Lord knows me. And I want to go, oh, yeah, he sure does. He does. He knows everything about you. But this was what was going on. And, and, and could you believe that this would happen? What was going on, Brother Craig, in this time was that they were saying, I know that the good Lord, I know that he's up there, and I know there's only one Lord. But yet they were living in sin. I know that we can't imagine that happening in our day today, right? Where everybody says that they're a Christian because they got the T-shirt, been there, done that, but yet they don't want to live it. They're not living it in everyday life. They're not living it in their profession. They're not living it within their marriage. They're not living it. Listen, they come to church and kind of put on this program and go away, and everybody thinks everything's okay, and the next thing you know, they're running around with this one. They're rested with this one. They're doing these things. They're drinking at the bars. They're running around behind people's backs at the ballpark, and, and, and listen, sleeping with one another, doing all this stuff. And you go, how? And, and we, we spend all of our time going, What's going on? What's going on around us? The problem is this. Professing things, but not possessing it. There's a difference between saying, I know there is a God up there, because James says that even the demons believe that. Now, I hate how people today take this one scripture and they try, Brother Craig, to diminish the thought process of the gospel. When you accepted the gospel, it was by believing Jesus Christ as the Son of God. There wasn't any other thing. And so they take this scripture, and they take it and cut it out of the Bible, and they try to twist it around to say that just believing is not enough to save. When all of the scripture says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, to those who believe on him, to him they, he gave the power to become the sons of God, right? That it's by the word of God that we're saved because of what? Belief in him. The Bible says that Philip, a deacon, an evangelistic deacon, shared the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch, and he said, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe Jesus Christ. And then after he believed, he says, what prevents me from being baptized? Here's some water right here. And he says, nothing. If what? If you believe with all of your heart. And now we have this crazy theory today that we've got something greater and we've got a better understanding of it all because we take the scripture and we go, well, it ain't just believing because even the devils believe, right? 
They go, oh, it's not just believing alone, because even the devils believe. They have a demonic faith. They have a demonic understanding and a demonic knowledge. It says that they believe. But, you know, there's two more words after that. He says they tremble. You know what James is saying? He says that they kind of produce a work of their belief. He said they believe and tremble. But see, I believe and rejoice. I believe and get excited because I know where I was and know where I am. But the demons believe and tremble because why? Because in their belief, they deny him, reject him, and disobey him. And therefore, that's why they will be eternally separated from God. And James says you should not have a demonic faith because a demonic faith is this. It is Satan trying to get church members today convinced of the fact that all they have to do is say a certain thing, repeat a certain thing, check a certain box, tell somebody one thing, and even this, walk through a baptistry and that now they're saved and they never have to work for the Lord, they never have to have fruit, they never have to have produce, and before long they're sitting around with a bunch of Baptists at the dinner table, and they're talking about once saved, always saved. I got it when I was seven, and the whole life, all you've done is run around with people, drinking and being drunk all the time, lying and cussing and doing this stuff. That is not faith. That is not faith. Let me say this. That's not a salvation faith. That is a demonic faith where the devil has you by the tail and making you think because you did a program that therefore God will receive you. No, it isn't about doing better. It isn't about saying some kind of phrase to be better. You have to be forever changed. That's what's missing in the gospel presentation in our churches today, changed. If there is no change, there is no Christ. I'm telling you, if you can still do the same things you did when you were lost and it does not bother you now, you don't have true faith. You say, how dare you, Brother Steve? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. James did. James says that is a demonic faith. And what it should cause you to do is the exact same thing it causes the devils to do. And you ought to be fearful. Because you are treading on eggshells and thin ice. Because you want to do what you want to do because it satisfies the flesh. And God forbid, this is exactly what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. You say, brother, see, why are you always talking about Southern Baptist Convention? Because that's what we're in. Why are you always talking about the Baptists? Because that's what we are. That's what we're doing here. I'm not going to sit around and talk about other denominations when we're all messed up. You know what? We're the ones that need to be fixed. If it's going to be help, we've got to focus on who we are. And we've sat by long enough and, and kind of put this kind of kindergarten salvation on, on, on this thing. And we go, well, we never have to do anything anymore. I, I did it back then. And God's, I'm telling you, you're not going to get into heaven because of that. <clears throat> you're not. If that faith that you have didn't change you, look at what he says at the end of that verse. In verse number 21, I think it is. It may be that. It was that last verse, 19, maybe 20. It's in 20. He says, don't you know? He said, but will you not know? And look at what he says. Oh, vain man. You know what he's saying? That's a dead-end faith. It's empty. Don't you know, oh, vain man? And you can also insert woman in here too. That faith without works is dead? He said it's no good. He's not going against Paul. He is actually showing what Paul stated is true. Look at this last thing. 
I'll try to, I'll try to make you happy before you leave. Faith is dead, <clears throat> dead faith, and he said a demonic faith. But I'm trying to help you to remember, memorize these. This is what I wrote in my Bible. I, I write them on the side over there so that I can remember them. But the other one is a demonstrated or a definite faith. Amen. A demonstrated faith. The Bible gives us two more illustrations, and we'll close. The Bible, first of all, talks about the faith of a guy by the name of Abraham. Why did James bring Abraham, Abraham into the view? Abraham was a Jew. Not only was he a Jew, but he was the Jew of all Jews. Yeah, Jesus is the king of all kings. Abraham was the Jew of all Jews, all right? And the Israel, a uh, lot of all Israelites. The Bible says that he brings him in. Why? Because he's trying to reach everyone with this passage, with this word and this letter. <clears throat> and so he stretches out and he tries to reach all the Jewish people. And he says, let me give you another illustration. If, if the illustration earlier about being destitute and, you know, not having any food and all that was enough. Let me share with you. Look at what he says in verse 21. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. If you go back to verse number 21, he says, <clears throat> Was not Abraham our father justified by works? He, he, he's bringing in his Jewish kindred, okay? It's Jewish people. Because he says, not Abraham your father, but Abraham our father. He says, wasn't he justified by works? And if you stop and think about it, you go, oh, wait a minute, hold the phone. How can somebody be justified by works, Anthony, when Paul says that you can only be justified by grace? How can James say that he's justified by works now? The Bible is contradicting, and the Bible is confusing, and the Bible is wrong, and all that, because listen to what it says. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and verse number 9 together. It says this, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. But look at these words, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now go back to verse number 21 of chapter 2 of James. He says, Abraham our father was justified, saved, by works. Go back to verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians. He says you can't be saved by works. And it's like you sit here and you go, wait a minute. This is wrong. Paul is telling the church at Ephesus that there is no work of the law that you could do or complete and accomplish. Paul is saying you cannot be circumcised enough. You cannot go to the temple enough and offer a sacrifice. You cannot do all of the things and works of the law to save yourself because the matter of it all is if it were not for God's grace, you would not be saved at all. The Bible says that Noah was saved by grace. Many people today, many religions today want to say that Noah was saved by works. If Noah wouldn't have built the ark, then he wouldn't have been saved, Brother Ricky, had he not built that boat. And that's where people go, if you don't get baptized, you're not saved. Little Maggie, if she doesn't get baptized, she's not saved. And they talk about these things that you have to do in order to justify your salvation. Noah, before he ever drove a peg in that boat, before the building company ever dropped any piece of gopher wood out on the floor for him, he looked up to God and was looking for grace. 
I have people that tell me all the time, you can't find God. You're not looking for God. The Bible says, oh, we are like sheep and have gone astray. And that there's nobody seeking him. And I understand what those prophets said. It said that they were the people of God and now they don't even care about him and they're going away. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. But the Bible says that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It did not say that God looked down and put grace into Noah. It shows us that Noah, evidently, if Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Noah had to be a person who was looking for God in times of trouble. Brother Mitch, he had to be a person that was going, God, we need you. God, we need your help. And because Noah looked unto God, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, which meant this, which meant that God evidently was looking down upon the earth and Noah was evidently looking up to God and they met together in salvation. God's grace saved Noah, but his faith moved him to do what? To build an ark. Why? Because he knew the understanding and salvation of God. God told Noah, hey, buddy, it's about to rain. What's rain? Noah, build an ark. What's an ark? It's a big boat. How I built it so wide, so tall, so deep, and all of this. And Noah did what? Well, you know, God, it's fine. Just, just drown us all. I mean, I'm saved. Right? Noah could have done that. God, I'm saved. Well, I gotta, why do I need to build something for over 100 years? You know how long it's going to take to do that? Lord, I, when, when I found grace the other day in your eyes, that's enough for me. And, and I've been there, done that, and just, just go ahead and kill us all. Because I know when I die, I'll be with you. No. Noah's faith in God moved him to say, yes, sir. And he built an ark. The Bible says to do what? To accomplish the will of God. To do the works of the Lord. Sons, I can't go to the vineyard today, and I need one of you to go. Hey, will you go? And one of them says, yes, I'll go, and he lied and didn't go. The other one says, I ain't going. And he repented, and he went. Which one did the will of his father? The will of the father was to accomplish the work that the father needed done. The one that repented and went and done it. But both of them had opportunity to accomplish the will of the father. Paul says, not by works of the law, so that what? We can't boast. Craig comes in here with all of his millions of dollars and money, and he brings in three or four of the most prettiest lambs that you ever thought of. And he says, oh, my sins, which are many, are going to be covered by this glorious, expensive sacrifice that I bring, works of the law, and therefore I'll be justified in the sight of God because not only have I accomplished what the law said in bringing one sacrifice, but I have five that I have brought. And I come in with my turtle doves. You know what I mean? And I'm holding on to them so tight that they're almost already dead because I can't lose them because I don't have any more money to get any more. And I bring them to the Lord, and I can't boast. And there I am, like a publican, beating upon my chest, saying, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Craig is boasting of all the things that he's given, all the things that he's done. Therefore, salvation in Craig could be boastful because of the works of the law. But God took that all away because none of us could complete that. And what he did was he said, it is not your extravagant gift, not your expensive gift, but it is my son who I am giving to all people. Amen. And he satisfied everyone's sin with his own precious son's blood that was more costly than any lamb or any turtle dove, amen? <clears throat> Why? Because salvation is that way. But James says this, think about it. Abraham was justified by what he did 
in his salvation and his faith because why? When he laid his son Isaac upon the altar. Brother Ronnie, he was fixing it. And this is hard to understand because God told them to not to sacrifice their children. And then all of a sudden, God commanded them that they would never do that, that they would not be like the heathen that would go out into the valley of Moloch, and uh, valley of Hinnon, and offer their children to the God of Moloch. He said, you don't do that. <clears throat> and then he takes Abraham in the tent and goes, hey, man, I want you to take your boy, and I want you to sacrifice him. Don't, and there's nothing in the Bible that, that says Abraham went, what? I mean, that's where, and Steve saith unto the Lord, what? What do you mean? Abraham never argued with him. It says that he got everything together, saddled the donkey, got the wood, got the fire, and they took off. The wife's going, where y'all going? We're going yonder to worship. <laughs> you know what I mean? I can't tell you right now. The boy's listening. They're going to worship. And as they're walking, the boy says what? He said, Lord, he says, Dad, I, I see the fire and I see the wood, you know. Where's your sacrifice? Well, son, that's what I've been meaning to talk to you about. <laughs> they get up there, and Abraham lays his son on that altar. And it's so hard to understand because God commanded them not to, but Abraham loved God so much and believed the God who promised to give him a child even when he was 100. Brother Anthony was even powerful enough to raise his son if he did die that day. And Abraham took that knife and was fixing to do it. And the angel of the Lord caught him by the hand and said, Do the boy or do the lad no harm, right? Right? And they turned and there was a ram caught in the thicket. The Bible says what? In all of that, Abraham was trying to do what God wanted him to do and was going to be faithful no matter what God asked him to do. He was going to be faithful. What was happening is Abraham didn't get saved that day on top of Mount Moriah offering his son. James says... Don't you see Abraham's salvation and faith? Don't you see that what happened to him when he was 75 years old and God called him, called him out of the Father's house to go <clears throat> and he went and he did the things of God? Don't you see that his faith actually became perfect or what we would say is this word, manifested or unveiled that day when he was going to offer his son? He said it was made perfect. Look what it says. He says in the verse number 22, he says, don't you see how faith wrought with his works? That they worked together and his works was made perfect? Why? Because it wasn't a work of the law. It was a work of Abraham's faith because God never passed a law that they would kill their kids. It was a work of faith. And he says there, and this next scripture, look at verse 22 or 23. He says, and the scripture was fulfilled. Come on, brethren. The scripture was fulfilled. What does that mean? It means that every scripture that talked about Abraham believing God, trusting God, and having faith in God, and on that behalf of belief, righteousness was put into his account. That's what it means to be imputed unto him. It means, cha-ching, it was deposited into his account. And so he says, all of the scriptures that said that beforehand are all fulfilled. You know what? Coach, somebody comes up to you and goes, I'm the best basketball player around here in Morris. And you go, well, your first question probably would be, oh, really? And you get, they go, yeah. And then all these other people go, oh, yeah, he's pretty good, he's pretty good. Yeah, he's pretty good. They all talk about it. And that person gets out on the court, and they stand at the free throw line, and they go, whew. 
I promise you, I know him and I know his face. I'm telling you, if that happened in a basketball game, he'd slap his foot. He slaps his foot all the time. He's always, <laughs> he's always like, he would be like, they told me he was the best. He is horrible, right? Why? Because somebody professed it, but they didn't have it. They didn't possess it. And this scripture says everything that was told about Abraham having righteousness and having faith, this is good. All of these things that was told about him was fulfilled in the fact of what? When he did the work of God, when faith became a reality and he did what? He lived out that work of faith. Isn't that good? And even if that isn't enough, the Bible says that God created us that way. Paul says you're saved by faith, through grace, by grace through faith, not of works, because you can't boast. But look at what he says in verse number 10. In chapter 2, verse number 10, he says, we are his workmanship. Brother Mitch, it says, when we were saved, we're now created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works. Not to ride the pew or a chair to heaven. Works of faith, which God has ordained that we should walk in them. The Bible says we can't even do the works of faith if we don't have salvation first. Here's the last thing. Faith of Abraham. And they all go, can't you hear these people, the Jewish people, as they're reading this, they're going, that makes a whole lot of sense. Now, now James throws a kink in the car, or a, a kink in the whole machine. You know what he says? He says, "Let me also ask you this: What about Rahab? Rahab throughout all the Scripture, poor Rahab. She's never known as just Rahab. She's always Rahab the harlot. You know what I mean? Rahab the prostitute." And I don't know if y'all understand this or not, but y'all don't want that phrase on your name. You don't want people to say that. Steve the drunk. Patty the harlot. You don't want that said about you. Every time. Y'all remember Rahab the harlot, don't you? And everybody goes, oh yeah, everybody knows Rahab. Remember her? What did she do? The Bible says, wasn't she justified by works of faith when she did what? When she received, hid the messengers, hid the spies of Israel, and sent them out another way. <laughs> James uses an illustration about a Jew by the name of Abraham. Then he uses an illustration of a Gentile by the name of Rahab. Rahab the harlot. Rahab, who you don't think a whole lot of, don't read a whole lot about in the Old Testament. Rahab finds her name, Brother Brian, in the pages of Hebrews chapter number 11. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 11. The hall of faith. The Lord just taking a chapter of the Bible to brag on faith. To brag on people who lived by faith. Abraham who looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. Jacob, Joshua, all these. And Gideon and Rahab. What? The harlot? Is that the same Rahab? Right? You know why? Because God's showing us it's not by how great Abraham was and it's not by how less Rahab was. It's not by great Craig's great offering that he can bring or my less of offering of the law that I can bring because no one is saved by works of the law. You are saved by the work of God's love by God's salvation reaching out to all of us. 
So you're saying that Rahab's faith was perfected. In other words, she got saved when she did those things. No, this woman believed and repented. And when she was told to do these things by God, she acted in obedience of faith and did it. She did it because why? It was the proof of that. Her works of faith were not to prove to God if she was saved or not. God knows if you're saved or not. You don't do good works to prove to God that you're saved. And there's the second one. You don't do good works to prove to yourself that you're saved. You know why? Let me say this to you. You know whether you're saved or not. If there's anybody in this room that knows if you're saved or not, it's you. More than your preacher, more than your mom and your daddy, it's you. But do others know that you're saved? Yes, Abraham did those things to show. Rahab did those things to show. Hang with me. Listen, stay with me. Because you need to understand this. If you're saved, you need to understand this. If you've got that demonic faith, you need to get rid of that and you need to be saved. You need to be changed. Because if you say it happened for me when I was this age and I did it back then and a little Bible camp so-and-so and you don't have any fruits and you have no desire to worship God and your mouth is just as filthy and all that stuff, you still do the same thing. That's not salvation. You're being duped by the demons. That's not salvation. I promise you it's not. <clears throat> But we are saved now to show. To show. People need to see Jesus and they need to see God's salvation. How does that happen? You probably missed these words, but look at it in verse 24. You see then. Isn't that a great teacher? <laughs> he said, you see it then. How that by works a man is justified and not faith only. What he's saying is, is how a man's faith, works of faith, shows his salvation to others. He said, you see it. You see it. And look at the other part. He says in verse 22, he said, seest thou how faith wrought Abraham's works? Isn't it cool that the, this great teacher of the word of God points it out to us and says, you can see it. You can see it. So here's my question to you. Can somebody say that they were saved, whether they were young, maybe as a child, or even if you were saved today, and they live without faith works, without fruits of the Spirit? Can somebody say that? They can. They can say it. But let me ask you this. What do you think? Seriously. So what do you think? You think that you can say something to God, feel fuzzy inside, and then go back to pleasing the flesh? No, you can't. You're, Paul says you're bought with a price, that you are not your own. People say, Brother Steve, you're just against this and against... No, I'm not. I'm not against things. I'm not against people especially. All I'm trying to do is to everydayly tear away from my fleshly desire, from... The satisfaction of my flesh. Brother Steve, you just don't understand. Do you ever want to get mad and just go off on somebody? No. No. Not at all. Brother Steve, you, have you ever had thoughts about those things before that you went through and you done those things? You, you, you've never had any thoughts? On? No, not one. Not one. When I got saved, Satan doesn't tempt me anymore, right? No. I want to know this. Do you think it's right if you die today and you have this so-called experience from long ago 
but for the last 25 years, you've never lived for Christ, never done anything. What do you, do you think it's right for me to tell everybody, oh, I know without a shadow of a doubt, you're there in heaven. It's not. And I ain't going to do it. It's not right. So you shouldn't live that way. If you're saved, if you're changed, then you should live changed. You shouldn't be trembling about the fact that Jesus is coming back. You should be rejoicing about that. And if you don't show faith to your family, your friends, and others around you, and yet all they see is just your fleshly things that you do, when they die and go to hell, because you had an opportunity to share Christ with them and you didn't, what do you think about that also? I don't want to stand before God with what the Bible says is blood on my hands, according to Ezekiel chapter number 33, that says if we do not blow the trumpet and warn them that the enemy is coming, then the blood, their blood will be required on our hands. But if we tell them the truth that the enemy's coming, then they'll have to answer for that themselves. What do you think? What are you thinking this morning about your own walk with the Lord? If you're thinking, I don't know if I really got saved or not. Don't take me as being angry or beating you down. I just want you to know for sure that you're saved. And I'm not in it. I, you know me. I'm not in it. I don't get notches on my belt. I don't do all this. It's not about numbers or anything like that. I just want you to go to be with the Lord. I want you to be saved. I want you to live for the Lord. If you can sit back and there's any question at all and you go, I'm not real sure because I'm not changed. Since I said I was saved, I'm, I'm not changed. I've not done anything for the Lord. I don't, I don't have any desire to talk to him in prayer. I don't have any desire to read his Bible. And worship, you know, I go, but it's no big deal. If I go or not, I could stay home. If that's you, won't you listen to the Lord this morning saying, you need to be saved. You don't need that kind of dead and demonic faith. You need a, a faith that's definite. You need to be saved. Father, we thank you and we love you. As always, Lord, everything belongs to you. And as always, Lord, there's none of us that can do the work, convince or coerce people to 